Things change a little bit, I've noticed here, in what we'll be discussing over the next uh, few months. Uh, because, of course, we've been trying to go through the Bible um, as a story. Old Testament is a story. The life of Jesus is a story. And uh, now we get into, um, well, what should we call it? Uh, some interpretation of the story. Uh, key texts that we often like to um, throw out to summarize the points of the story are found here in the writings of Paul and in the rest of the New Testament. Um, so this Bible study is also a little bit um, different because I've really tried to get into the, um, a little bit behind the meaning of some of these passages. So I hope you'll uh, bear with me as we quote some other authors and people to, to try to really understand what Paul is explaining here. So let's pray as we begin. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for going to such great lengths to preserve this book that explains things using so many different uh, metaphors and you've tried to explain it in a way that we really can understand. So as we look at this book, help us to understand what Paul is saying and may all of this be uh, critical in restoring our picture of who you are and strengthening our trust in you. In your name we pray, amen. When we get to Galatians, we'll talk about how Paul and Peter had a face-to-face -face confrontation. And Paul um, confronted Peter and told him to his face that he was being hypocritical. And so that's why I kind of like it here that when we read the, the books of Peter that we come to this passage here referring to Paul where Peter would say, And remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote, that he could call him our beloved brother Paul after Paul would seem to have uh, humiliated him. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Now notice how Peter uh, would uh, analyze the letters of Paul. Some of his comments are hard to understand. Have you ever found some of the comments that Paul makes hard to understand? Well, you have the uh, authority of Peter to say, yeah, they are, there are some things that are hard to understand. And notice, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture, and this will result in their destruction. Um, I'm going to uh, suggest that there are some things in Paul that, uh, that perhaps um, have not been understood clearly or have been misinterpreted, and I wouldn't uh, accuse anyone of being ignorant or unstable, obviously. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly what Peter is referring to. But, but I think uh, the, the recent understanding of some of these passages really has led to a greater clarity of Paul's central message. So the book of Romans opens. From Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and appointed to spread the good news of God. Or some translations have the good news about God. God had already promised this good news through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice, this good news is about his son. We've said so many times, the good news is about a person. It's about his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his human nature, he was a descendant of David. In his spiritual, holy nature, he was declared the son of God. This was shown in a powerful way when he came back to life. So, the good news is about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully human. 100% God, 100% human. And so, the, the thesis of Paul's letter is the good news about Jesus. And this is the critical thing here that uh, we want to uh, try to understand. What is Paul talking about? And uh, we're going to spend uh, most of our Bible study here on this verse and the expansion of this verse 
throughout the rest of Romans because this really is Paul's thesis where he would say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is God's power for salvation. And so the gospel, which we just said is about Jesus, is God's power to salvation. And we hear the word salvation, we think, okay, I'm going to be saved down the road. And that's not all that is implied in the word salvation. You hear the word salve in there. It's for healing. Okay, so the gospel is the power that uh, restores us and, and heals us. It is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For notice, for the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his character. That is what is the essence of the gospel. From faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. Uh, this is really a condensed verse here, but what Paul is saying is, the good news reveals something incredible about God. God is light. God is good. God is love, the righteousness of God. And what does that do in us? When we finally behold God as he really is, that stimulates faith, trust. We're restored back to trust God again. And the righteous, by faith, by trust, will live. Greek word can be translated either way, trust or faith. We are one back to trust God again by the revelation of the good news through Jesus Christ. Now, um, I have always quoted this verse this way, and um, I'm sure if all of you went home and looked in your Bible, uh, you might find it this way. This is the Net Bible. Uh, or you might find it this way. And this is the Good News Bible, which, um, which is the one I frequently quote in this Bible study. Notice how it translates this verse quite differently. For the gospel reveals how God puts people right with himself. Now, that's really quite a different meaning. Does the gospel reveal the goodness, the righteousness of God, or does the gospel reveal how God puts people right with himself? And you will find translations going back and forth on this. It, it makes a huge difference, really, in, in how we understand things. And for this, I would like to recommend, and I hopefully later this afternoon when I uh, put up the audio uh, for this Bible study, I'm going to link an article uh, which was written by... Uh, Sigvi Tonstad, I don't know if any of you know him, uh, teaches uh, religion here at Loma Linda, and he has an, an incredibly good article called Reading Paul in a New Paradigm. And he summarized this passage, Romans 1, 16 and 17, and on to Romans 3, and the theological debate that has gone on uh, for over 100 years about how to translate this verse. And it really gets to the core of what is Paul trying to say. Um, so it, it's very detailed, it's very theological. I had to read it two or three times to really grasp everything that he was saying, um, but I would really encourage you to spend a little time with this uh, article. Let me just bring up a few points. Um, first of all, there's a, there was a man, a theologian named George Kittle, who kind of tackled this verse and came to the conclusion, no, 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 this is really saying the good news is about God's goodness, his righteousness, his faithfulness. And then after saying that that is the plain reading of the text, he said it stands as an established fact that in Romans, the justification of sinners by faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus, is the prevailing thought. In other words, that's what we all assume. And he said, given this premise, this reading, which he has just, had just explained, will be confronted with grave reservations. In other words, uh, that is not the theology of the day. There are going to be a lot of objections 
to interpreting the, the good news being primarily about what kind of a person God is. And then uh, Sigvi would say to Luther, the good news was not an attribute of Christ. It was the God-given stance of the believer by which he appropriated the righteousness that would be the basis for his acquittal. Okay, two very different ways of looking at the good news. But we have, to, we have to tackle this and understand it because it is the thesis of Paul. His whole book is an expansion of this point. Where do we get this? Well, Luther, for, for all of the praise that we should give Luther for bringing us out of a really dark understanding of God and a dark system, uh, this was Luther's uh, understanding. And he would say, moreover, the with the expression, the righteousness of God, one must not here understand the righteousness through which he himself, God is righteous. He didn't agree with that. But righteousness through which we are made righteous. Okay, that was Luther's very clear opinion about how to understand this. Um, and uh, again, uh, Sigvi would conclude here that uh, there's little doubt today that Luther reached his conclusions as much on the strength of an overarching theological vision as on the basis of strict exegesis. So in other words, it was his theology that very much played into his interpretation of the Greek here, rather than taking the words as they read. And going on, there's no doubt that Luther's interpretation came into being as part of a broad theological system. It was not primarily worked out on lexical, semantic, and exegetical basis, some good words there, the accepted tools of interpretation today. Okay, so we have uh, kind of come out of this way of understanding things uh, from Luther, and, and again, we should, uh, not meant to be disrespectful at all to Luther, but we can appreciate Luther without uh, agreeing necessarily with every single thing that he said. And, and I know I mentioned this when I went through Bible translation. I just found it interesting that Luther would say about things like James, it was a letter written in straw. And Revelation, I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. And even though it opens with, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Luther said Christ is neither taught nor known in the book of Revelation. So um, anyway, we can use Luther's foundation, wonderful foundation, but I think we should always be in the search of greater understanding and light in things of this matter. Now notice how many of the newer translations that have come out. Here's New Revised, New King James, New American Standard, and I was very pleased the very uh, conservative English Standard uh, version that came out recently translated this way, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. The TN TNIV, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. So uh, the theological uh, shift of how to understand this is very much, well, let's just translate it as it reads, which is the good news is about the kind of person God is. The good news is that God is just as Jesus revealed him to be. Okay, now, if we expand and, and emphasize now the last half of this verse, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God through faith for faith. That stimulates our faith, our trust in God. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Now, Paul here is quoting from the Old Testament, which we'll talk about. But this is a theme that comes from the Old Testament. This verse in Psalms 9 is just incredible. Those who know you, Lord, will trust you. I mean, that is the gospel in its essence. Eternal life is to know God. 
Those who know you, we really know what God is like, what does that do? Naturally, there is trust as a result. Okay, that is what Paul is saying. If you would just know God as he is in Jesus Christ, you would trust him. And we'll notice that all God asks is trust. Abraham was declared right with God because he trusted him. Trust, if we are connected in a trusting relationship with God, where God says, that's good, that's all that I ask. This trust is so important, as if we read in Galatians, Paul would say, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith or trust, activated and energized and expressed and working through love. All right, when we are restored back to a trusting relationship with God, that's when all of the, the wonderful things begin to happen. Okay, so again, when Paul quoted this and he said, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith, uh, where did he quote that from? Well, this is from a really interesting story in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. You believe the gospel found here in the book of Habakkuk. And so we go back to Habakkuk and we read the context for this. And I think the context for Habakkuk, I mean, Paul is answering the words of Habakkuk. Listen to the story. Habakkuk doesn't understand what God is up to. And he said, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I mean, what is Habakkuk doing? Uh, I mean, isn't this what we do? We look at the world around us and we see children dying and we see innocent people suffering and being abused. And what is our question? God, how in the world can a God of love, an all-powerful God, how can you let that happen? All right, this, is, this is Habakkuk's complaint. So we read on and Habakkuk would say, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, all right, that is, uh, you know, the answer to your question, Habakkuk, it will seem slow in coming, but wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Okay, so Paul's quoting Habakkuk and he's saying, you know what, the answer to your question, it may seem delayed in coming, but the key thing is those who are right with God will live by trusting him. Okay, and so Paul, I think, is really picking up the question. And just to quote other theologians on this, um, in this book called Echoes, thus, when Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, we cannot help hearing the echoes, unless we are tone deaf, of Habakkuk's theodicy question. Theodicy is the problem of evil. A good God, a powerful God, and evil. This is a question of theodicy. By showcasing this text, virtually as an epigraph, at the beginning of the letter to Romans, Paul links his gospel to the Old Testament prophetic affirmations of God's justice and righteousness. He's answering Habakkuk's inquiry. Okay, so again, the righteousness of God 
I mean, when did we really believe that God was righteous? I mean, it was when he came in human form and fully revealed the goodness of God. That is what wins us back to trust. That answers Habakkuk's question. And then those who are righteous will live through that trust in God. I think that's what Paul is saying. So as the the book of Romans opens up here, we've said that Paul starts out by saying the good news is that God is, well, let's use another word besides righteous. The good news is that God is faithful, trustworthy. Uh, The good news is that God is just like Jesus in character. And this restores us to trust in God. And we're put right through our trust in God as we have come in to uh, really believe that he is this way. And then as Paul goes on, and we're going to come back to this, but Paul would say that to reject this good news about God is the experience of God's anger. It's been a long time since we've talked about this, but Paul really hammers it home. Hey, this is the good news. If you don't believe this good news, there is an experience here of God's anger or wrath. And then Paul would go on to talk about Gentiles who have rejected the good news and Jews who have rejected the good news. And then he would say, picking up on the same theme, the theodicy theme, true, some of them were unfaithful. He's just talked about all these unfaithful people. But just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Just because we've been bad, does that mean that that, uh, God is that way too? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say and you will win your case in court. What is God's case that he has to win in court? Um, God needs to be vindicated as thoroughly good. Yes, all-powerful. Yes, an evil world, but God is not to blame. God is good through and through, and God will win his case. Again, this is Paul's thesis here. And it ultimately climaxes here in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And I would just encourage you, go online, read this in 20 different translations. This is, most people would agree, the heart of Romans. And it has been uh, interpreted in lots of different ways. And just just to build this up a little bit, this is what theologians have said about this. Several New Testament scholars have singled out this passage as the key to the whole letter. So people would say it's the center and heart of the whole of Romans, the thesis proper, the great programmatic summary of his gospel. Okay, we all agree, this is the heart of it. This is Paul's conclusion. And in this book, Wrestling with Romans, the most concentrated and heavily theological summary of the Pauline gospel, and every word has to be wrestled with. But if we take the trouble it demands and really enter into the background of his words, it is not, I believe, obscure. It's, however, profound. Okay, so we really want to understand this passage. So I'm going to read it here in the net translation. And um, again, I I find it helpful to... Read it in a fresh version. Compare lots of versions. Um, So this is the net translation. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God. Do we see it there again? The righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Does this not seem to be emphasizing the same point here in Romans 1? the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified, which means set right, they are set right, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat. That's Luther's translation, the mercy seat, accessible through faith. Notice, why did Jesus die? 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. And when we uh, talked about the atonement, we said that the intrinsic effect of sin, separation from God, sin causes separation. That has an intrinsic, destructive effect. God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. On Jesus, we see the result of that separation. Again, Paul would say a second time, this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. So Paul would say again, it's about God's righteousness, God's righteousness, and how many times in here that restores us back to faith. Now, this passage here uh, that talks about the mercy seat, um, we have, um, I think from the, the difficulty in translating this Greek word, which is helisterion, uh, it can easily lead to a, a different understanding, I think, of the gospel. The King James would say, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And of course, propitiation, we, uh, we begin to, to think in sort of an appeasement model. Um, was God the Father appeased at the cross? Well, uh, we'll just, again, look, compare other translations. This is the New Jerusalem Bible. And it says, God appointed him as a sacrifice for reconciliation through faith by the shedding of his blood. So were we reconciled back to God or was this, there an, an, a propitiation, an appeasement at the cross? Um, so important to our understanding of who God is. And here I think we need a little bit of, um, just to go back, and I wish we had time to go through the whole book of Leviticus again. We went through the sanctuary system. And um, the word here, helisterion, literally refers to the lid. The Ark of the Covenant here, it's the lid, which Paul would define in Romans, that is Jesus Christ. He is the lid. Three inches thick, solid gold. All right, And so, really, we could just say that, uh, just use the word lid, Almost. Okay, and our question is, what happened at the lid? Certainly blood was sprinkled on the lid. What's the meaning? Why does Paul refer to the lid uh, in this translation? Well, um, again, for time, I would just like to point out that this system here, I believe, is ultimately to not to shield us from God here with the Shekinah glory symbolized in the most, most holy place. The purpose of this system is that we come closer. We come through the veils. We want to be right there at one, reconciled back to God. All right, and so we have these three altars here, the brazen altar made out of bronze and two gold altars. Um, the altar of incense here and then the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the, the understanding I like of this is that uh, this represents um, you and I at three different stages here. That the brazen altar in the outer court repre represents the unconverted mind, yet willing to listen. What happens to that brazen bronze altar? Uh, the lamb is sacrificed on it, and we are one back to trust. And then the, uh, the three items of furniture that are in the holy place represent the life of the believer, the church. Okay, we have the candlestick, which uh, in uh, Revelation, the church is the candlestick to be a great light to the world. And the, the showbread is there. And the priest would go in and eat the showbread. And the believer would ingest the word also, uh, reading the Bible, being in communion with God. And then we have the, the golden altar. 
and the incense, remember, was there at the golden altar, and incense is again and again referred to in the Bible as a, uh, a prayerful relationship with God. That incense would go over into the most holy place. And then finally, the covenant box in the most holy place, again, covered by the gold lid, Okay, and this represents interpretation again. I like personally the sealed mind, settled into the truth about God, his character and principles. And again, what was in that covenant box? Ten Commandments. Isn't the ultimate always held out to us to have the law written on the heart? The law of love was in that covenant box in the most holy place. So um, again, I like the, the idea that what happens here is that we are being brought into at-one-ment with God. Okay, uh, the Shekinah glory, the Ark of the Covenant, the lid in between, okay, not being shielded, but being brought together as one with God. Okay, and so Paul would say things like, we have then, my friends, complete freedom to go into the most holy place by means of the death of Jesus. He opened for us a new way, a living way through the curtain, that is, through his own body. We're meant to go in there symbolically and to enter into this intimacy with God. And what happened when Jesus died? The temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Okay, and so Paul would say, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And because of Jesus, we know that God is gracious and that we can go boldly in. Okay, so a lot of symbolism here, but uh, in a nutshell, what I would see is that Paul is describing, yes, he's referring to the lid, and Jesus Christ here is ultimately the, the one that brought us to at-one-ment, into unity with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, so coming back here to this verse in Romans 1, describing the good news that restores trust, the very next verse, which might seem like, uh, why is Paul going from the good news to this, describes God's anger. God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them, because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. Isn't this an abrupt shift here? The good news is that God is righteous, and now God's anger is revealed, and God punishes people. Um, how are we to understand this? Well, fortunately, we just have to keep reading. That is the answer almost in every case. Don't stop reading. But if I could just go back to this verse in Psalms 9, where we said, those who know your name will trust you. Again, name is character. Notice how the verse continues. For you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. It is the two sides of the coin. The one side is God is love personified. God is righteous. What if we don't respond to that? What if we're not one back to trust? There is another side. And the question is, is God's wrath uh, an active, imposed uh, action against the sinner? Or is it... Um, an intrinsic effect on the sinner. I like this verse about you do not abandon those who search for you. And um, so as Paul goes on, this is the critical understand. This is the point in the Bible, I think, where we really understand this is the wrath of God. This is how God punishes. We're just reading on here in Romans 1. And Paul would say, they say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. What does God do to those people in his wrath? How does he punish them? And so God has given those people over to do the filthy things their hearts desire. And they do shameful, shameful things with each other. Notice, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. 
the truth about God, what I've just said is the good news, the righteousness of God. They exchange that for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself, who's to be praised forever. Because they do this, what does God do to them? God has given them over to shameful passions. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, what I've just said, the good news, that God is just like Jesus in character, that he's righteous, that he's good. Because they refuse to keep in mind this true knowledge about God, he has given them over three times. You want to know how God punishes? Want to know what his wrath is? He gives them up, he gives them up, he gives them up. And what I find uh, so important here is that Paul didn't just come up with this new idea. Uh, This is emphasized dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament. He is synthesizing the Old Testament in this passage right here. And uh, then he would describe, you want to know what happens to those people when they're given up? Uh, Listen to the description. They're filled with all kinds of wickedness, evil, greed, and vice. Notice these are things that uh, not God is imposing on them. They're full of jealousy, murder, fighting, deceit, and malice. They gossip and speak evil of one another. They are hateful to God, insolent, proud, boastful. They think of more ways to do evil. They disobey their parents. They have no conscience. They do not keep their promises, and they show no kindness or pity for others. Okay, so having said that, this is what I love about this subject, because... We're not just relying on a key text. We are relying on the whole Bible. We want to be convinced based on evidence of what God's wrath is. And so we go back through the Old Testament. I'll just go through this really quickly, but I I find this case, for me personally, very compelling. It starts all the way back in Deuteronomy, books of Moses. An encouraging verse. My anger, this is God talking, will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. Don't stop reading, okay? Uh, How does God shoot all of his arrows? Again, we just keep reading on. They fail to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and ten thousand by only two? The Lord, their God, had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And if you just link or do a search or next time you read through the Old Testament, be watching for God's wrath, God's anger, and you will again and again and again and again find it associated with God abandoning, giving up, handing over, forsaken. Uh, It is a relationship that is, uh, I think, so well established in the Old Testament. Again, two chapters later in Deuteronomy, God talking, they will abandon me and worship the pagan gods of the land they are about to enter. When that happens, I will become angry with them. What does God do in his anger? I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. God's anger is to give us up to the consequences of our choice to separate from him. And that is, again, very, uh, yes, it is a punishing situation, but it's an intrinsic not imposed consequence. And, um, you know, I know uh, the first time I was uh, kind of exposed to this idea, I thought, well, why would God ever abandon? Why would he ever give up? I mean, I would never give up my children. But yet, if your children grow up and they become adults and they persistently are going down a certain road, I mean, isn't there a point where you have to give them the freedom to make their own choice? All right, and so uh, this verse here in Jeremiah, it's... uh, 
it's terrible, but I think a, a good explanation at the same time, where God would say, very well then, I will give you freedom, the freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. Because God's choice, when we have rebelliously chosen, no, I don't want to go that way, God, I, I reject that. And he has done everything possible, pulled out every stop. He either has a choice, he can become puppet master and control us against our will, and he does not do that. Or he can give us up to our own choice. And when he does that, that is the experience of God's wrath. So what I'd like to do here is just to go through lots of stories very quickly, um, just to try to make this sound credible. When the uh, Philistines uh, stole the covenant box, and uh, that was a very rebellious time, um, here's the description we have of this event in Psalms 78. They angered him with their heathen places of worship and with their idols. They made him furious. God was angry when he saw it. So he rejected his people completely. He abandoned his tent in Shiloh, the home where he had lived among us. He allowed our enemies to capture the covenant box. Again, what did God do in his anger? He abandoned, he allowed. The Babylonian captivity, uh, the description of this. We have so many prophets that describe this, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of Lamentations. Uh, here we can make a real good case for this relationship. Jeremiah 21, God saying, I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in this city. This is God talking. People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. God just said he would do it, and then they'll be killed by war, starvation, disease. It will be given over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then God goes back to describing that he will do it again. I will set your palace on fire, and the fire will burn down everything around it. I, the Lord, have spoken. And just read on the story. God did not start the city on fire. The Babylonians came and burned the city down because God had given them up. And then uh, Jeremiah would say, you have brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord your God when he led you on his way. Notice, your own wickedness will correct you and your unfaithful ways will punish you. That is the punishment. You should see, know and see how evil and bitter it is for you if you abandon the Lord your God. When we abandon him, uh, again, that puts God in, in such a difficult situation. What does he do? Does he override our freedom? Again in Jeremiah, Judah, you have brought this on yourself by the way you have lived and by the, way you, by the things you have done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. Okay, that is an intrinsic, not imposed consequence. Jeremiah 25, the Lord has abandoned his people like a lion that leaves its caves. The horror of war and the Lord's fierce anger, there it is again, abandoned God's anger, have turned the country into a desert. The Lord has abandoned his people. I'm sorry, I read that one. The Lord, the God of Israel, told me to go and say to King Zedekiah of Judah, I, the Lord, will hand this city over to the king of Babylonia and he will burn it down. This is the last, uh, uh, the end of Jeremiah here. Again, very clear. What actually happened was God let them go. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, burned the city down. In Ezekiel, you will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire. What happens? And I will hand you over to brutal men, experts at destruction. Ezekiel 25, I will hand you over to other nations who will rob and plunder you. 
And then the very end of Second Chronicles 36, this is historically just telling the story. And the king killed the young men of Judah, even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone, young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy. God handed them all over to him. That's what actually happened. And Lamentations, this incredible book, which uh, opens and closes on this theme. The Lord in his anger has covered Zion with darkness. Its heavenly splendor he has turned into ruins. On the day of his anger he abandoned even his temple. And the last verse of Lamentations, Why have you abandoned us so long? Will you ever remember us again? Bring us back to you, Lord. Bring us back. Restore our ancient glory. Or have you rejected us forever? Is there no limit to your anger? And that is hard to understand unless we have put the entire Bible together to understand that God's anger, it's, uh, my goodness, uh, how does God feel in his anger? He had to let his children go. Okay? The Assyrian captivity. Now we have to go back to Hosea, where God would say, I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. And so many people read the Old Testament and just develop such a fierce picture of God because of verses like this. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. I will abandon my people until they've suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. And then as Hosea goes on and the description of how he has to let his people go into captivity, and God would say, they insist on turning away from me. They will cry out because of the yoke that is on them, but not one of you will lift it from them. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Is this an angry God or is this a God who is, uh, you can just kind of hear the tears in this voice. How can I give you up? How can I abandon you? And I like the Message Bible here, the last part of this verse. I can't bear to even think such thoughts. My insides churn in protest. <clears throat> last example here. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay, and this was Paul's summary description of this about the Jews. In this way, they have brought to completion all the sins they've always committed and now God's anger has at last come down on them. And we are prepared to understand that verses like this if we've read Romans 1. Paul just defined what God's anger was. And of course, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD? It was the Romans. Okay, they rejected God. The Jews rejected God. I mean, God did everything he could. He came in person. He died for all those people. They, he couldn't do any more. Okay, so he abandoned them. And again, we associate that with God's anger. And then, of course, so important, the, the death of Christ. Paul would say, because of our sins, he was given over, given up, forsaken. What did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you given me up? Why have you forsaken me? All right, there we really see the full intrinsic effect of sin. So it is a two-sided coin. The good news about God, but the other side of the coin is not a dark side of God's character. It is the darkness of being separated from God. Now, just if I could make a point here, because this is a kind of a hotly debated subject right now, and there are a number of objections to this view of God's anger. The reason it appeals to me is we have all of that evidence uh, that I just tried to go through very quickly, and there's a lot more. That was just a little bit of it. But let me mention some of the, uh, the things that are said. One is, well, this view is soft on sin. Um, in other words, uh, God has to punish sin. And the view that sin carries an intrinsic horrible penalty, well, that is kind of a soft view on sin. Let me give a couple illustrations of this. 
Uh, let's say that you don't brush your teeth and uh, you get cavities because you don't brush your teeth. And so a dentist comes along here and uh, maybe makes all kinds of recommendations and you still don't brush your teeth. Um, does a dentist sneak into your home at night and put cavities as punishment for not brushing your teeth? Would you call a dentist soft on cavities if the dentist uh, did not impose uh, some penalty for not brushing? Um, obviously not. Uh, I think this view is hard on sin because it, it puts all of the blame, all of the punishment on the effects of sin. Or we just consider here a physician. You've got a patient with lung cancer that's spread to the brain. Um, is a physician soft on cancer if you do not inflict some penalty? Maybe the patient was smoking. Um, or is the punishment uh, an intrinsic thing? Another objection is uh, that uh, people will say, well, this, that you're saying that, explaining it this way, it makes God too nice to punish sin. And again, we just come back here to a medical model. It, it just, it's not a question that makes sense to me. Would you call a dentist too nice if they don't punish for not brushing teeth? It's not, it's not an issue of being too nice or not nice. It's just the reality of how it is. Yes, dentists are too nice uh, to punish people for not brushing, but they don't have to. Okay? It carries that intrinsic penalty. Another would be, well, what about the Old Testament? Don't we have dozens of stories where God punished in the Old Testament. Wasn't he punishing sin when he sent the flood and uh, when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and so on? Um, and again, as we have tried to painstakingly go through each and every story in the Old Testament, what we see God doing is intervening, not because sin had to be punished. What did he do with the flood? He waited until he was down to one man. And then he had that one man. I mean, the Bible says again and again, the last righteous man. And he had him preach this long message and God had to rescue the last man. And so, again, it was not because uh, the, the line had been crossed and God had to painfully punish those people for their evil. I see God's all, all of God's intervention, just like we talked about Ananias and Sapphira last week. It was for the purpose of healing and restoration. And uh, I would just consider, like, um, you know, we're all God's children. Good and bad considers us all his children. And so if we try to just imagine here, let's just say we have 100 children representing all of planet Earth at some of these times. Uh, consider Sodom and Gomorrah, where you watch 99 of your children become so evil and wicked that they would abuse, kill, and destroy the one good child that you had left. Now, if you could, you've done everything you can for these people. If you had the ability, would you freeze, would you put in timeout the 99 who would go and sexually abuse and molest the only trusting one left. And I think that is essentially what God has done. He's put, uh, maybe time out is too soft of a word, but he has ended the life of many people, but they will all come back in the resurrection, same train of thought, same character, same ability to respond to truth and evidence. Uh, but he did it not for the purpose of punishment, but because, I mean, the God had not yet come in human form. He did it to try to preserve the world so that the good news finally could be revealed. And uh, I promise, last slide here, but for those of you that are Adventists, this is just a, a verse that I have appreciated, not a verse, a uh, quote, and uh, that describes end time events and see if this ties in with how we have just described God's wrath. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way, 
They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short. And if he is not restrained, we shall see more and more terrible manifestations of his power than we ever dreamed of. Uh, the description of the winds being held back, um, and so on. I think... Uh, this conception of God's wrath as his abandoning, I think, is important in our theodicy understanding of a good God, a powerful God, and a world that is in a mess. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, uh, thank you so much that you really have given us much evidence upon which to understand these things. Help us to take the Bible more seriously than we do, to uh, try to put it all together in one consistent understanding of who you are, and uh, again, uh, bless each one of the students here uh, during the upcoming months and help each one of them to come to a closer relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen.